We're continuing in our series on worship, living in worship, and we're studying the Psalms. We're studying a particular group of Psalms written by some people called the Sons of Korah. And uh, these were choir directors, uh, worship leaders in Israel. And so they were the ones charged with um, bringing the people together for worship. And we're letting their Psalms inform our understanding of worship. And so uh, we've been studying these Psalms over the last few weeks. And one of the things that we've discovered as we've been studying these Psalms is that you find worship often takes place at the intersection of human suffering and divine intervention. We often think, uh, you know, worship is something you do when you're happy, when everything's right, and you have clear reason to praise God. But actually, uh, we find in the Psalms that worship arises so often out of this intersection between the suffering of life and the intervention of God. And we're going to see that again in this psalm that we're going to be looking at today. I want to give you a picture to hold on to before I read the psalm. Uh, This comes from the Old Testament. It's a story from Elisha, when uh, Elisha the prophet was staying in this particular city called Dothan. And he had been a thorn in the side of the king of Syria, and so the king sent an army to capture Elisha. And he woke up in the morning, and his young servant woke up and looked out and saw the army surrounding the city, and he he was panicked by what was going to be happening. And Elisha the prophet prayed this prayer, and this is kind of what I'm, I'm hoping will happen with us a little bit this morning. He prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, open his eyes to see. And the young servant's eyes were opened. His spiritual eyes were open. And he looked out, and he saw that arrayed against all of that army were chariots of fire. He was seeing into the spiritual realm, and he was seeing that God was at work and protecting and watching over Elisha and him. And and it's a story of a vision, of being renewed in our vision. And that's what this psalm, I hope, is going to do for us today. It's a psalm about seeing into the spiritual realm, about peering into what God is doing behind the scenes of what we might be experiencing in this current moment. And not only do we get to peer into what's going on, but what we see there gives us a kind of a confidence. The psalm that we're going to read today is about having a kind of a defiant confidence in the midst of suffering and struggle and tragedy. In fact, this psalm was one of the psalms that informed Martin Luther's life. His most famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, was written on this psalm that we're going to read today. And, and, and this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. So we're circling back a few times to remember that and mention that. And it's such a fitting illustration of what we're going to be learning this morning because Martin Luther, Luther this little monk, stood up against the Holy Roman Empire. And there's this incredible moment in his life where they're bringing down all the powers and the forces against him. He's standing in the middle of a room with all the the most powerful people, and they are calling him to recant of all of his teaching. And there's a sort of confident defiance. He says to them, here I stand, I can do no other. Probably the most famous thing that Martin Luther uh, allegedly said. Uh, And and, and it's this this sort of confidence and defiance uh, in the face of suffering and struggle and potential loss. And it's really the story of this psalm. So would you open with me to Psalm 46? If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we will pass one to you. Um, Love for you to be able to follow along. It's on page 324 in the Bible that we hand out. So please uh, don't be shy if you need a Bible. And this is a Bible you could take home with you as well if you need one. Psalm 46. 
Before I read it, I want to point out some indicators in this psalm that will help us to make sense of it. You see this little word, selah, happens three times in the psalm, at the end of three sections in the psalm. We don't really know what that word means, but again, these are the psalms of the sons of Korah, these choir masters in Israel, and the word probably means take a break or musical interlude. So in our day, that would be where the guitar solo would go, most likely, and you'd sort of think about what... It was a moment to ponder what has just been said, and it also was, was a break. And you're going to see in this psalm, as I read it, there's three scenes depicted, three pictures that will be lodged in your mind. And it's the contrast between them that helps to bring to life what's really happening in this psalm. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. The first thing that we observe in the psalm is the simple truth that we live in a world of storms. We live in a world of storms. And when you first read some of these verses, they sound a little overly dramatic about the earth giving way, about the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea and the waters roaring and foaming until you experience a week like we have experienced with the storm in Houston. A few pictures just to remind us. I'm sure you've seen some of these. When we see a picture like this, we realize the power of the world that we inhabit and how things can change so dramatically and so quickly. Look at the next picture. This is, to me, the most striking. There's the freeway, 10, and there's the same space It's been turned into an ocean. Literally, the ocean has overcome it. And then this next one. This one just I discovered this morning. Apparently, somebody walked into their dining room and found a 10-foot alligator. This was not fake news. This is a 10-foot alligator uh, in the dining room. Um, We're not complaining about ants anymore, right? And then this is my favorite one, this, this last one. 
This woman is being rescued. She's in her entryway on a jet ski, riding out into the water, being rescued from her house. Uh, and I love the little kind of defiant uh, smirk on both of them. Um, we see in the world around us, and this week is just a great example, of how these verses actually do come to life. And I think about, um, you know, the... the, the uh, the, the, just everything that happened over these last weeks, and it just is so powerful. Suddenly, what is described here is not so crazy, not so out of the ordinary. Uh, and then it says things about um, when you hear about the nation's rage and the kingdom's tottering, and we think, oh, that's so dramatic. And then we see in the news a missile flying over Japan this week, or another bomb being tested, a nuclear bomb being tested. Uh, and we realize that there are clashes in the streets around us and that there is a sense of instability that can settle in upon us. We live in a world of storms. And then there's the personal storms that we experience, the ones with our families. Maybe it's our spouse. Maybe it's extended family. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's other loved ones around us. We experience the personal storms of finances or, or work or the personal storm of health. And we know that we live in a world of storms. Now, I have to call out, there are sometimes, it seems, a few people who float above the storms. And maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you are somebody like that, where you have just been blessed, and it seems that you float above the storms of life. And it's really easy when we're that in that place. And, and I feel, you know, in some ways, when I look on my life, I feel like... God has blessed me in that way. I've been able to float above so many storms in, in so, many, so many seasons in my life. And it's very easy when you're in that state to look back and think to yourself that it's because of your own ingenuity or your own cleverness or your own skill that keeps you from descending into the storms. But then you realize, as one famous pastor said when he saw a bunch of prisoners go by, um, but for the grace of God, there go I. It would take so little for any of us to be brought down. It would take so little for any of us to be destroyed. And we recognize, if we're, if we're honest, that we are made of dust and that we are incredibly fragile. And when you see the things happening in our world over this past week, that maybe is driven home more fully to you. And for those of us who are blessed, we're blessed with being in a season where maybe we're floating above the storms of life. The purpose of that is not so that we can avoid storms in the world, but so that we can use what we've been given for the sake of those who are in the storm. To take all the, the blessings that we have and the security that we have, and not to hoard it for ourselves, but to bring it to bear on the problems of this world. And so in that sense, none of us is... Uh, free to escape the storms of this world and the storms of this life. It's part of what it means to be human. That's the first section, what it reminds us of, is that this world is filled with all kinds of storms. In the second section, starting in verse 4, we have a different kind of a picture. It's We envision a city, and it's a city of peace, very much in contrast to what we experienced in the first three verses of the psalm where there was so much tumult and, and turmoil. 
in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And, and in, in, in this section, the psalmist paints a picture of this city, the city of God, which is the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem is built on a hill that is solid and stable. In fact, Psalm 125 says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. That's the, the holy hill. That's where Jerusalem is, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So it's in stark contrast to the first three verses where the mountains themselves are being lifted into the sea. This hill, upon which this city is built, abides forever. And it will not be moved. And of course, it's reference to the Jerusalem of that time. But perhaps the psalmist didn't know he was also beginning to paint the future picture that would become more full in later revelation in the New Testament. So in the, in, in, in the revelation of, of John, we read something like this. Then John, as he's envisioning the future, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this city that's filled with peace and on this immovable rock points forward to the heavenly city, which will abide forever and ever. And see what happens to the water in this city. The water is subdued, whereas in the first three verses, the water was unleashed and overwhelming the mountains in this place of peace the water is subdued and it's submitted to the will of God. And so if we were to turn back into Revelation 22, we would see this beautiful picture in the heavenly city of the water having been subdued, flowing from the throne of God, going right down the middle of the streets of gold glass and, and the tree of life on either side. It's a beautiful picture and it taps into what happens between God and the water all throughout the whole history of the Bible. In the very beginning, the waters were covering the earth and, and, and the Spirit of God hovered over that chaos and brought order out of it. And then Jesus comes and he's in, remember he's in the back of the boat sleeping and the storm comes and the disciples are panicking and Jesus is, is awakened and he, stand, he gets up and he stills the storm. And then we have this picture in the future in the book of Revelation where the water is subdued. And so we have to see the contrast between what is visible in the moment in verses 1 through 3 and all the chaos, and then this, this beautiful vision in verses 5, excuse me, 4 through 7 of this place where the waters are subdued and the mountain is stable, immovable, and the nations that rage around it and the kingdoms that totter melt at the voice of God. The political threats don't reach this fortress of a city, which is the word that it's referred to. And, and that word fortress has this idea of being lifted up high and impenetrable, unassailable. I keep thinking of our travels of recently we were in Europe and we went to Salzburg and in Salzburg there's this incredible fortress in the top of the hill in the middle of the city and it's got the steepest railway in the world to get up to it or you can walk. We walked up at this super steep hill and we got to the top and you look at it and you can see for miles and miles around and it's sheer cliff all the way around and you think to yourself, this is impenetrable. It is a fortress in the sky who could ever assail it? And that's the picture that the psalmist is drawing of the city of God, 
that is raised up above all the raging and fighting of this world and impenetrable. It's a place of safety and security and rest. So I want you to lay these two visions next to each other in your mind's eye. The chaos and the storms and the mountains moving and then the peaceful city on the solid rock with the subdued waters. Just like that young servant with Elisha. He looked out and all he could see was the storm, the the, the army around him. All he could see was what he could see with his physical eye. And Elisha prayed for him and his spiritual eyes opened up and he saw something magnificent. He saw the chariots of fire, the chariots of God, arrayed around the armies, offering protection. And and this is what the psalmist is trying to do. He's trying to say, look, this is what you see in the world around you, but here's the vision of what's really happening in the spiritual realm. And latch your vision onto that and don't let go. Hold on to that beautiful vision of the fortress city on the immovable hill with the subdued waters when the mountains around you seem to be moving and the waters seem to be overwhelming you. It's that vision that ends up being sort of the source of the confidence and the defiant, joyful approach to the brokenness and the suffering and the sin of this world It's that vision that becomes the source of our strength. So that, I'll use a phrase from Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors as we lean into, as we allow our eyes to be opened to see what's actually going on in the spiritual realm. We become more than conquerors. And I'll explain what we mean by that. It's a sort of chin-out defiance. Look with me again in verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. We will not fear, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. We will not fear, though its waters roar and foam. We will not fear, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. You see the kind of chin-out defiance against what we experience in this world, this hope and this confidence in something greater. But we only can have that hope and confidence if we have the eyes to see the spiritual realm, to see the picture that God is giving us of the heavenly, the peaceful, the solid city. How do you do that? How do you, how do you see in that way? How do you become more than a conqueror? I've been so ministered to by this text this week because I, I feel like in the last while I've had a bit of a defeatist attitude about life and, 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 and there have been a lot of hard things, but I feel like I've been walking around allowing them to color who I am and the way I think more than the heavenly vision colors who I am and the way I think. And maybe you're like that this morning too. Maybe you're like me, that you have struggled under a bit of defeatism. And this passage, this text is for you to be freed from that 
and to lean into something greater and more wonderful. And so how do you do that? Well, um, I've got just a few uh, uh, ways that we can respond that come right out of this text, I, I believe. The first one is we need to join God's people. And, and here's how I want to talk about this. This is sort of the basic foundational thing, that if we want to know that the victory of God in this world is for us, we have got to get connected to God. There's a kind of a, an end times element to a portion of this psalm. Look in verses 8 and 9. It talks about a time when, when God will make everything right that's wrong in this world. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Now that hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. He will make wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear so that nuclear warhead will be dealt with, and he burns the chariots with fire. What carries it will be taken care of. Do you see, there's this sense in which all the chaos, the political chaos and the fighting of kingdoms that happens in this world has an end. That's what this psalm says. And it's an important truth about the way that the world works according to the biblical vision. Some worldviews have a sense that the world goes round and round and it's just cyclical in nature and we just, we just go from one to the next. That's not the picture of the scripture. The scripture teaches that the world has an end. And this makes all the difference in the way that we think and live in this world. That there will be a day when all the stuff that's going on in this world will be dealt with. Justice will be brought to bear. God will intervene. And the fact that there is that day changes the way we live in this moment. I was walking, I like to take a walk around my block, and I, I see this from time to time when I'm coming near the bus stop. There's somebody who's late for the bus. And this last week was just classic. This poor woman in high heels and, you know, lots of bags, you know, running all out for the bus, you know, things practically falling out, and you could just feel the urgency of getting there. Because the one thing that you know about the bus is when it comes, it goes. And I have watched so many people, my office is right by the bus stop, I've watched so many people, you know, missing the bus, standing there, you know, frustrated, sometimes getting angry because they have missed the bus. Because the bus comes and goes. The Bible teaches that the world itself is a bit like that. That it's not, the time is not endless. That it, it will be finished. This season that we're in will be finished. And therefore, we ought to have a kind of urgency that matches that woman running to the bus. An urgency about spiritual things that matches our urgency about being late for work. Some of us who are in a searching mode in the spiritual realm, we maybe have been sitting in it for a little while and we're considering who God is, we're considering what the Bible teaches, we're considering this person of Jesus and, and we're waiting and we don't feel an urgency about it and I want to tell you that there is an urgency about it. There is a moment, there is a decision moment that needs to come and we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what will happen in the day that follows. 
And so what is most fitting is for us to run towards God in the way that I saw that woman running towards the bus. Now is the time. That's what the Bible's teaching. That's what it's saying. Now, what does it mean to run in the spiritual realm? It seems very clear that all throughout Scripture, the, the appropriate human response to God is faith. That we would place our faith in God, in all that he is. Now, God said um, at one point, let me show you exactly who I am. So he put on flesh and he came into this world, Jesus Christ. And he demonstrated who he was in his love and his sacrifice and his teaching and his leading. And then he led in the most powerful way. He went to the cross to die an atoning death, to sacrifice himself for sin. Why do we need that? Because one thing we know about this world, that it's incredibly broken by sin, by selfishness, by people living in their own way. And, And part of the destruction and the chaos is because people are sinful. We don't live in the way that God intended for us to live. And the problem with that is that it ends up separating us from God. And Jesus came to deal with that separation by taking into himself all of the punishment that God needed to mete out against sin into himself so that it wouldn't have to be placed on people. And so our choice is to say yes to what Jesus has done. And we do that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And in a spiritual sense, that's how you run towards God. You put your faith in the work that Jesus has done. We, we talk about Jesus as Lord and Savior because he saves us and he becomes the central focal point of our lives. And so I want to encourage you, if you have been lulled into a, a, a sense of comfort and as you're considering the question of who God is, if you're just waiting and waiting, I want to encourage you to, to think about this very important element that that there is an end and that there's an urgency and it's time perhaps for you to make a decision. And in doing so, you join God's people. That's the first step. That's sort of the foundational thing. But then there's some really important things that happen after that. And that is that, first of all, we keep our eye on a vision. Uh, The vision that we painted for you in verses 4 through 7 has to do with this city, which is on a solid hill and immovable, and the waters are subdued. The waters serve the purposes of God, and the people live in this holy habitation, and the nations cannot assail it. It's a place of protection and peace. And we all uh, want to be a a part of that city, Um, and we all need to keep our eye on the presence of, of that city even now. Uh, That's why the psalmist brings it up, to keep our eye on this reality, this secure reality. And in doing so, keeping our eye on the vision keeps us strong. I think of the story in the New Testament about Peter, who stepped out of the boat to walk on the water at the bidding of Jesus. Jesus was walking on the water. Peter said, let me go too. And he went to walk on the But then when he started to look down and see the water, He started to doubt, and he started to sink, and and Jesus reached out his hand and grabbed him. And it's it's such a powerful story for us about vision, about keeping our vision on what matters most. It's, It's like Jesus was saying, keep your eyes on me, look at me. And this psalmist is saying, keep your eyes on the vision of the city whose foundations are forever. Keep your eyes on that vision. Don't look away. Don't be distracted. 
Keep your eye on that vision. And in doing so, you will be strengthened to meet the chaos and the challenge and the topsy-turvy nature and whatever storm that comes into this life. I'm thinking about our cell phones that we all carry around. And read an article in The Atlantic uh, this last couple of weeks about how the cell phones are, are destroying a generation. iPhones, they've done studies on the generation that's come of age since the iPhone, and suicide rates are, are up, depression is up, friendships are down, all kinds of statistics that they're tracing back to the, the, on, the oncoming of the phone and the effect that it's had on these young students. It's kind of like you know, this certain generation grew up in the Wild West of technology where we haven't figured out exactly how to manage it. And now we're seeing the disruptive effects. And, and one of the ways to talk about this is sometimes when you're looking at that foam, you're just you're focusing on the storm because it gives you access to all that's crazy in the world. It gives you access to all the things that the people are doing or at least saying that they're doing that you wish you could be doing. So you feel awful about yourself. It's, a tr- it's an actual dynamic that takes place. It's airbrushed pictures of people in their very best, right? It's not reality. And it's, it's like looking into the storm uh, when you see the news and, and you see all these things happening and taking your eye off the heavenly vision. And, 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 and when you look into this book, you know, you're doing the opposite. And I find this, this, I sit down and there's my phone and there's my Bible and it's just calling out to me, Right? Look at the storm. Look at the chaos in the world around you. Or I can open the word and soak in the heavenly vision. Which one will be strengthening to my soul? Imagine if we spent as much time in the scripture as we spend in our phone. Just imagine how that would change our vision. It's not a crazy idea, actually. I I know it sounds crazy that we would spend as much time in this as we spend on this. But it's not crazy. In fact, it's probably the best way to live. To be so latched into what is going on in the spiritual realm that the things that are happening around us with with the physical eye start to lose some of their power over us. Because like Elisha's servant, we're seeing into the spiritual realm. Keep our eye on the vision. We've got to join God's people. We've got to keep our eye on the vision. We've got to run towards God. We keep our eyes focused on the vision, and then we need to be still. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Your best play oftentimes in this life is simply to be still and let God do his thing. That's your best play oftentimes in this life. And, and what does that mean? Well, it says in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I want you to consider memorizing that verse. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. There are three words in that verse that are extremely powerful. Um, one of my favorite commentators points this out. Uh, Derek Kidner is his name. He says, a refuge is the external protection. And the word for strength there has to do with the internal power that you need. So God provides both the external and the internal that you need. 
to stand against the storms that you face. And not only does he do that, but he is a very present help. He comes alongside you at the time when you need it to provide both the external and the internal strength that would fortify you. This is what it means to be still and to know that God, the Lord, is God. To allow him to release his power into your circumstance. Have you been in that moment when you have literally done everything you possibly can and there is nothing left for you to do except be still and know that God is God. We live in the land of the type A personalities, I think. I'm convinced. People come to the Bay Area. They're driven. They're focused. They're the kind of people who get her done, right? And they just, they fight. And when they hit challenges, you know, they keep going and, and fight against it. This image that comes to my mind is, is, is from the book Unbroken. If you saw the story of Louis Samperini, some of you may have seen the, seen the movie. And uh, this, is, this is a man who, who, fought, who could fight against anything. And there's a moment where his plane has crashed, World War II. He's in the Pacific Ocean. He's in a rubber dinghy. There's sharks below, and there's airplanes flying above. And if there was any moment when you wanted to give up, give up on life, that would be the moment. The, the planes are shooting at them in a rubber dinghy, poking holes in the rubber dinghy, and there's sharks in the water. So what do they do? They start jumping out of the, wa- of the boat when the planes come by, punching the sharks in the nose in the water. And then when the plane goes by, they climb back into the boat away from the sharks and pump up the boat again before the air goes out. And they do this over and over again until the planes leave. And if anything gave you a picture of the indomitable human spirit, it's that, right? It's that kind of fight that we have. And some of us have it to the gills. We'll never give up. But here's the problem that can come with it, is if when we we think that it's up to us to solve all of the problems, and here's the thing, whoever you are, God will eventually bring you to the place when you are at the end of yourself. And you will have only to say, I need to be still and know that you are God, because you will have nothing left to give. Now, with Lewis, the story of Louis Samperini, he went into um, a prison camp and was brutalized there. He still came out and he still fought. The thing that brought him down at the end of his life is he could never forgive his, the person who held him in prison and abused him in prison. And he finally had to give up and he, he submitted himself to God. He said, I can't forgive without your help. And he was finally broken. He had to be still and he had to know that God was God. God will bring us to that place, and it will be painful, but it will be beautiful. And in some ways, that's where his power really really begins to take off. And we need to go to that place on our own. We need to go there to be still before God and let him work. And then the last one is simply this. We keep on praising. I said this at the very beginning. We keep praising, and that's what this scripture teaches us, that in the midst of the the, the, the challenges of life, that's when we praise God. It makes no sense sometimes. I've had some of my very best worship times standing in front of this room when my life was most in shambles. Because it's the intersection of my suffering and God's intervention, divine intervention, 
That's where we worship. And in the midst of it all, we keep praising. That's what this scripture teaches us because it says in verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Whether you praise God or not, he will be praised. So you might as well join him, join praising him now. He will be praised. He will get glory out of this universe, out of this world he's created, out of all the mess that this world is in. He will get glory. And we're more than conquerors, not just because we have victory in Jesus Christ, but because on the other side of that victory, we get drawn up, drawn up into the exaltation of God, and we get to literally participate in His exaltation for all eternity. And the thought of that makes us confident amidst the storms right now. Proverbs 31.25. It's a proverb about sort of the ideal person, the ideal wife, woman in this case. There's a verse in the middle of that chapter that's always struck me. And I think it captures what this psalm is calling us to. Out of our defeatism, out of our sense of being overwhelmed, getting our eyes on the heavenly vision and moving with confidence into places of suffering and struggle and pain. It says of this woman, strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at the time to come. God, it is our prayer that you would so instill our hearts with the heavenly vision, that you would so magnify your greatness in our midst as we are still before you, that you would so inhabit our praises, that you would so powerfully and completely bring your salvation to bear in the lives of the people around us. That the very inner core of our being would be fortified and strengthened to meet the storms of this life and to have an overabundance left so that we could help others as they suffer in the storm. This is the vision you have for us as your people. In our weakness, in our stillness, in our smallness, in our dusty frames, we're made strong in you for the purposes that you have for us. Just like Luther stood before the massive storm bearing down upon him and said, here I stand, I can do no other. Make of us the same kind of person. And in doing so, bring testimony to your greatness. 
in us. Exalt your name in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.